Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. and welcome to episode four of our six-part series on emergency general surgery. Once again, I'm Jordan Nada, and I'm joined by Drs. Ashley Nadler and Graham Skellorn-Gross. Hello. Hi. So our goal with each episode is to cover some of the most interesting and controversial clinical challenges faced by emergency general surgeons. So far, we've looked at the evidence behind laparoscopic cholecystectomy in the third trimester, what to do when cancer presents emergently, and some specific considerations when taking care of patients over the age of 65. That's right, Jordan. We should also point listeners towards a great recent BTK episode that came out on June 6th by our colleagues from the University of Washington's Minimally Invasive Surgery Team on acute gastric bovulus and duodenal perforation two very important clinical entities that can be very stressful for acute care surgeons. We know that's a great topic because we were actually working on creating a very similar episode. But, oh well, we had to change our plan and it's an awesome episode and we highly recommend listening for anyone who's interested in emergency general surgery. So Graham, since we can't do four gut emergencies, what should we cover today? Yes, hopefully they left us a few good emergency general surgery topics. Um, Okay, so I got a call from the emergency department late the other night, and I have to say I found it equally daunting to the dreaded duodenal catastrophe. So the emerge doc told me that they had a patient with a rash on their perineum and their upper leg. They weren't sure if maybe there was some crepitus, and they were asking me about next steps. So, of course, as a surgical resident, my first thought with any rash is, could this be a necrotizing soft tissue infection? Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. So that's a tough topic. So necrotizing soft tissue infections go by many names, sometimes depending on the location or presentation, including the flesh eating disease, gas gangrene, necrotizing fasciitis or myositis, uh, and Fournier's gangrene. Uh, Early in the course of the disease, the findings are often fairly nonspecific, making the diagnosis challenging. Uh, However, as we all know, these diseases can be rapidly fatal and diagnostic delay can lead to tremendous additional morbidity and mortality. So these things really are the stuff of nightmare, uh, stuff of nightmares for emergency general surgeons. Yikes, they definitely are. Well, luckily, we have two great cases for you today, which we hope will highlight tips and tricks for making the diagnosis, the initial treatment and resuscitation, operative decision making, and post-operative management of necrotizing soft tissue infections or NSTI. Also, we're very lucky to have our friend and colleague, who's an emergency general surgeon, trauma burn surgeon with tremendous expertise in necrotizing soft tissue infections, Dr. Stephanie Mason. She's going to join us on this episode today to discuss discuss her approach to this challenging disease. Sounds great. So uh, why don't we get started with the first case? All right, Graham, a 75-year-old man with diabetes and chronic renal disease presents to the emergency department with one day of increasing perineal pain. He's noticed some redness in the area and came to the ED because the pain is now involving his scrotum. The ED physician has called you after seeing the patient and sending labs because he's worried this could be neck fash. What else do you want to know? Okay, that kind of sounds like the case I saw the other night. Definitely sounds concerning. So I'd start by checking the patient's vitals. I'd see if there is anything on their history, especially uh, do they have any comorbidities, any reason to be immunosuppressed, any recent infections or trauma to the area. I'd examine the perineum and the scrotum. Specifically, I'm looking for any open lesions, drainage, erythema, crepitus. I wanna know if there's pain out of proportion with my physical findings. 
And then I look at the labs. Um, the specific labs I want are the hemoglobin, the white blood cell count, sodium, creatinine, glucose, and uh, if it's been sent the CRP. All of this would help me to calculate a Lernix score. Fantastic. Glad to see you're relying on your clinical assessment the most, as this is a clinical diagnosis. He has a heart rate of 126, and he's on two liters of oxygen by nasal prongs. He looks quite uncomfortable, and he's lying on his side to avoid the area of pain. He has erythema from the perineum anterior to the rectum, extending to halfway up the anterior scrotum. He's very tender on palpation in those areas. There's no defect or drainage and no obvious crepitus. His white blood cell count is 19. His sodium is 132. His creatinine is 2.4 from a baseline of 2, or for the Canadians listening, 212 from 176. And his blood glucose is 210, or 12 in millimoles per liter. There was no CRP sent. Before we continue, there's a couple of great takeaways to point out from this case so far. Uh, for one, NSTIs are not a single infection type, but more a spectrum of disease. And while this is a fairly classic example, they don't always like this. And that's what makes the diagnosis and decision making so challenging. NSTI is often acute, but could also be subacute, making it even harder to suspect the diagnosis in some patients with a longer time frame of symptoms. The classification of NSTIs is often thought of as consisting of four categories, although the third and fourth types are not always included. Uh, type 1 is the polymicrobial category. It's the most common in the classic NSTI that we think of. Uh, it tends to occur in the immunosuppressed or elderly. Type 2 is a monomicrobial infection, most commonly with group A streptococcus, uh, followed by MRSA or MRSA. Uh, it occurs after trauma, surgery, or IV drug use in most cases. Type 3, when included, is a monomicrobial infection with Vibrio or Clostridium. It's often related to contaminated water exposure, and it's very rare in most settings. And type 4, uh, which is fungal in nature, is also, of course, rare in most populations and occurs in immunocompromised patients or after penetrating trauma uh, and tends to be secondary to candida or zygomycetes. Thanks, Jordan. It's also worth noting that the signs and symptoms are very variable and may not present until late in the course. Swelling is actually the most common initial finding, then pain and erythema. Bullet, skin necrosis, and crepitus are actually much less common. Sometimes there are no skin findings at all, especially if there's a deep tissue component of involvement, but skin sparing. The lower extremities are the most common site of NSTI, followed by the perineum, and less than half of patients will have a fever, and less than a quarter will have hypotension. So that just shows you how hard it is to make the diagnosis and how high our level of suspicion has to be. Okay, thanks. That That's really helpful. So I guess it, it always makes me wonder how much I can rely on the physical findings and are the lab tests even useful? Like I mentioned the Lernix score, and uh, I'll just uh, uh, let our listeners know we will include the score in our show notes. Um, but how much weight should I put on that? And uh, what else can be done to get a diagnosis? Yeah, that's a great question. The Lernex score is helpful for adding to your clinical assessment, but it's not perfect and depends on your pretest probability. The greater the score, the greater specificity of the test. So if you have a score of eight or higher, this gives you a very high likelihood of NSTI. In this case, the patient's score is at least a six, which gives them an intermediate risk of NSTI. So pretty good, but you already had a fairly high suspicion that it was an NSTI based on the clinical information. It's important to remember that it's just one additional tool that you can use to help you weigh your potential diagnostic uh, impression and treatment options with the patient. 
And of course, Graham, you don't want to add tests if your suspicion is already high, uh, as it'll potentially delay definitive management. Now, that's why in this case, I wouldn't wait for a CRP before treating this patient. Uh, although, like I said before, we don't always know or suspect NSTI right away. In these cases, in addition to CRP, imaging might be helpful. Uh, so a CT is highly sensitive and specific as long as you can get it in a timely manner. Uh, but of course, you don't want to delay management. Soft tissue swelling is often present uh, on the CT, but you may not see imaging evidence of soft tissue gas until quite late in the course of disease. MRI is even more sensitive than CT, but it's not as widely available in the ED and of course not nearly as timely, so it's rarely used. I've also done incisional biopsies or cut downs for diagnosis. This can be done in the emergency department or ICU with local anesthetic. You can make an incision over the area of concern that's big enough to fit your finger. If you see dishwater fluid draining, then you have your diagnosis. If not, you can probe the wound with your finger, and if the tissue is necrotic, you should be able to pass your finger without resistance uh, or the tissue impeding you at all. You can also send the fluid for a quick gram stain, and if bacteria is present, it also confirms your diagnosis. Now that we've covered diagnosis, I wanted to welcome Dr. Stephanie Mason at this point to share her tips on how experts like her make the diagnosis of NSTI in addition to what we've discussed so far. She has taught me much of what I know about this topic, so it's truly a pleasure to have her input today. Thanks, Ashley, and thanks for having me on your podcast. As you mentioned, necrotizing soft tissue infections are a spectrum of disease. Early on, they are generally infection of the skin and fat more superficially that progresses to infection of the fascia and the muscle. The exception to this is when there may have been recent trauma or a muscle hematoma that gets infected via hematogenous spread and ultimately requires an in an NSTI that spreads from sort of the inside out. And in that case, you need to have a high index of suspicion because there may not actually be a wound. In either case, uh, necrotizing soft tissue infections trigger a massive inflammatory response, which is why these patients get so sick. In terms of diagnosis, you should have a really high index of suspicion in any sick patient that has a skin abnormality, especially for patients presenting early in the course of disease. In terms of labs, I typically don't use the scoring systems. I think they're probably best for research purposes, but clinically, I find that a low sodium is a really helpful parameter. I tend to worry about a necrotizing soft tissue infection if we've been consulted on a wound and the patient has a sodium that's less than 130. Ultimately, the gold standard for diagnosis is going to be uh, an incision and drainage, so operative management. We know that mortality is directly proportional to the time to OR, so it's really critical that we avoid any delays in operating. Unfortunately, this is a diagnosis that we need to make very quickly and often clinically based on the appearance of the patient, even though most of us will see very few of these uh, in our career. Unfortunately, it's probably not helpful to know that extra tests are a common reason for delay, but they're rarely helpful. A CT that shows gas will be helpful to you in making the diagnosis, but a negative CT doesn't rule out an NSTI. And so you often get the CT and find yourself no further ahead other than that more time has gone by. Ultimately, if there's concerning skin findings and you think it could be a necrotizing soft tissue infection, you need to at least do an incision and drainage. You can do that at the bedside or you can do that in the operating room. If the patient's stable and they have another skin lesion that you really don't think is consistent with an necrotizing soft tissue infection, then a biopsy of the lesion can be helpful, particularly for Stevens-Johnson syndrome or uh, TEN or toxic epidermal necrolysis. Thanks so much, Stephanie. That really helps add to what we should look for and stresses the importance of timely decision-making. 
So Graham, if we go back to the case, what's important for the initial management of this patient with suspected NSTI? So I think the first thing is to make sure that the patient's stable, that they have good access, and that could include two large bore IVs as well as arterial line and central line if needed, and a Foley for monitoring their fluid balance. I would be aggressive with their fluid resuscitation and start broad spectrum antibiotics. I'd also call the ICU and could potentially start vasopressors if needed. Um, I talk to my attending and consent and book the patient for surgery. So that's great. There's a lot of options for antibiotics, and there are often local policies about which antibiotic combinations are most effective based on the local susceptibilities. Overall, recommendations include a carbapenem or piperacillin tazobactam or cefotaxime plus metronidazole. Uh, in addition, clindamycin and vancomycin may be added for the antitoxin effect of the clindamycin uh, and the gram-positive and MRSA coverage of the vancomycin. So fantastic discussion so far. Let's dig into the operative management more by discussing a case I saw recently. Graham, as always, we're keeping you in the hot seat. So a 31-year-old woman worked food delivery service was unfortunately struck by a truck while bicycling and dragged for about 30 to 50 feet. She presented to the trauma bay at our center and was hemodynamically normal aside from some mild tachycardia, which responded to resuscitation. She's able to have a full examination and CT scan and found to have a constellation of multi-system injuries, including bilateral rib fractures and hemonumothoraces, a low-grade splenic injury, complex pelvic fractures, a left open femur fracture, and bilateral open tip fib fractures. She has bilateral chest tubes placed. Her fractures are reduced and splinted in the trauma bay, and she ends up undergoing external fixation of her pelvis, washout and external fixation of her lower extremity fractures, and ends up being transferred to the ICU. So where we become involved is three days later, she develops fevers, worsening tachycardia, uh, despite stable hemoglobin, and increasing vasopressor requirements. Graham, what's your approach you calls you. Thanks, Jordan. Well, I have to say if general surgery residency has taught me anything, it's that when the ICU calls about this type of patient, you got to go see them right away. I'd help out with the resuscitation, make sure that blood cultures have been obtained, that the patient had been started on broad spectrum antibiotics. Then I'd also do a thorough examination of the patient, uh, paying particular attention to all of their lines, all the sites of their external fixators and anything pertinent to their other injuries. I'd make sure we had sent a full set of blood work uh, including the measures that we discussed previously. Obviously, uh, we don't. Uh, I know the nature of the discussion we're having today, but it's important to keep a broad differential and to make sure that we consider things that are likely but also very dangerous. So in a trauma patient in particular, there's always the possibility of a missed hollow viscous injury, so that's always on my list. Um, so I would have a, a low threshold to send the patient for a CT of the abdomen and pelvis if my physical examination didn't identify a clear source. Very nice, Graham. I completely agree with your approach. So Jordan filled me in on this case. And so you go to examine them and you find that on the patient's lateral thigh, on the side of her femur fracture, there's a boggy feeling. And it's quite erythematous in that region. She's heavily sedated and can't provide any subjective data on exam. How would you decide what to do? And although sending the blood work you mentioned will potentially add to your evaluation, I think it's important to remember that in the setting of a multi-system trauma, all bets are off, so to speak, with respect to the normal values and reliability of any diagnostic scores. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think with the erythema over the leg and uh, the other clinical findings, I guess I'm torn between going to the operating room and doing a CT scan. Um, the, the benefit of doing a CT scan is that uh, we would be able to include the abdomen and pelvis as well as the lower extremity. So, so like I said before, that might be helpful to figure out if there was something else going in the abdomen. 
As it stands, I, I'm not sure that erythema and apparent sepsis would be enough to be sure um, of the diagnosis given how complex this patient is. But really, if there's any doubt, I think that doing a diagnostic cut down in the ICU, like we talked about before, that's, that's, all, that's always a reasonable option, but it really depends on the, the clinical examination. That's great. And I think it's particularly important to have an approach to cases like these because NSTIs may not present as an isolated illness. They can often be part of a complex patient with other competing diagnoses. That's why it's important to keep NSTI on your radar for your postoperative patients who aren't behaving as you would expect or who develop an apparent wound infection with systemic decompensation, especially in the post-op course than you'd expect with a typical wound infection. Great. So getting back to our case, you end up doing a cut down at the bedside and there's very obvious necrosis in the area and the tissue is just peeling away under your fingertip. So you proceed emergently to the OR. Uh, when you're there, you find that there's very extensive necrotizing infection, including most of the tissue overlying the thigh and up to and around the hip, including around and past the X-fix pin sites. And even some of the abdominal wall musculature and perineum is dead. That sounds awful. The extent of necrosis in this case really underscores another critical but often underappreciated aspect of these cases. It's very important that as part of the consent process, the patient or substitute decision maker understands the severity of a potential NSTI diagnosis, how extensive and life-changing the surgical management can be, how that might affect them from a functional and cosmetic standpoint, and how long of a course it might require. Adequate consent for these procedures has to involve a full understanding of these factors within the constraints of an emergency setting. Now, with a case this extensive, how do we know when to stop cutting? When are you happy? So I think the important thing to remember here is that although it sometimes seems awful to remove the amount of tissue, you're not doing the patient any favors by leaving dead tissue behind that's only going to continue to propagate this infection. If you're not happy at the end of the OR, you're definitely not going to be happy when you come back the next day, only to find that things have progressed even further. But also remember that if you find you're getting into areas where you're uncomfortable or you're progressing to the point where you think necrotic tissue may not be feasible to resect or the situation might not be survivable, it's always helpful to ask for a second from a senior colleague or another service that deals with similar infections. In our case, it got to the point where parts of the musculature around the hip joint were dead, and we called orthopedics in to provide some, uh, who provided some excellent input and assistance with the debridement. Definitely. And that really highlights the importance of multidisciplinary involvement when these cases are quite extensive. So have a low threshold to involve other services like orthopedics, plastics, and urology when appropriate. There's no need to tackle all these things on your own, especially when the patient is going to need input from other services and immediately or down the road, such as for grafting or something like an amputation or disarticulation of the joint. So speaking of other things the patient might need, one, one thing I always wonder about is what's uh, in these patients that have involvement of the perineum, when do we divert the patient? What's the, what's the role of diversion here? Great question. And one that's definitely controversial. Diversion, thankfully, isn't typically an emergent procedure. You can often divert fecal flow through a rectal tube well enough that it'll buy you some time to see how the patient's progressing, what the full extent of the resection is required, and what further interventions such as flops and grafts may be required for ultimate healing. If involvement of the perineum is extensive, I tend to always make the decision about potential in the context of a multidisciplinary discussion again, often with plastic surgery and wound care colleagues. At the end of the day, you have to make a judgment call about whether or not you feel that fecal contamination is likely to prevent grafts or flops in the area from healing, and then a diverting ostomy is going to make that failure less likely in this case. 
often a tough call. So if you do divert, um, I would typically approach it with a laparoscopic loop sigmoid colostomy if possible. Okay, thanks. That's really helpful. So such a great case. Uh, what happened? Well, the wound in the end grew very heavy, grew face strep, uh, and the patient required extensive perineal debridement and ended up in the end uh, needing a fecal diversion, but thankfully was able to avoid a hip disarticulation. Yeah, that's an awful but very helpful case, Jordan. Stephanie, any other tips you can give us for operating for NSTI? I think the most common challenge that we see in operating for necrotizing soft tissue infections is deciding on what the extent of the debridement should be. I mark out the edge of the cellulitis before I start, and I use that as the initial guideline for myself as to the extent of the wound that I need to at least explore. And then I assess tissue viability as I go. So dermis should be healthy, pearly, and white. Um, Healthy fat should be pale yellow and glistening. Healthy fascia should bleed and not separate easily from the underlying muscle. And muscle should contract when you pick it up um, or buzz it with cautery. In terms of the technical aspects of the debridement itself, it's actually um, pretty easy. I find that sharp debridement is best. And so most of uh, this I do with either a scalpel or a pair of heavy mayo scissors. And then once you're satisfied with your debridement, the simplest thing to do once you've gotten hemostasis is just to use betadine-soaked gauze as your dressing. So place betadine-soaked gauze directly onto the wound. That's going to provide uh, antimicrobial activity topically. And then you can just cover that with uh, a lot of dry gauze. These wounds are going to secrete a lot of fluid, and so you need a lot of gauze to absorb that exudate. I get asked a lot whether or not we should do a vac at the first OR, and there's really no role for a vac at the first OR. The reason for that is that the likelihood that you have uh, achieved complete debridement of all of the devitalized tissue uh, at that first OR is very unlikely. And the next step after your first OR is really to start thinking about when you're going to take the patient back for their second OR. I think that should generally be eight to 12 hours after the first OR. And so putting a vac on for 12 hours really doesn't make any sense. Uh, In terms of timing of the second OR, I go based on a few things. The first is uh, what the wound looked like and how extensive a debridement I had to do. The second is uh, by trending their white count. So I typically follow the white count every six hours. Um, And if it's jumping up, it suggests that you need to go back sooner. And then I also consider the patient's hemodynamics. We know that they get a little bit sicker after the first OR, but then they should start to uh, improve. And if they're going the wrong direction, it's probably a good suggestion that you need to have another look. After the second OR, most patients need at least one more, so a total of three ORs to get control of the wound. And once you've gone back and haven't had to debride any additional tissue, you can be pretty confident that you have control of the wound and you can consider a vac at that point. The other question that comes up is about the need for fecal diversion. In my opinion, there's no role for a stoma at the first OR. You're really there to deal with the infection and to blunt the inflammatory response and get the patient back to the ICU for ongoing resuscitation as quickly as you can. Patients don't typically infect their wounds with stool. So a lot of these wounds can be managed without diversion or can be managed with a fecal management system. Ultimately, I wouldn't consider uh, fecal diversion until reaching the phase of starting to plan the eventual reconstruction and once the patient is out of the critical care phase. So I think if I could sum up my tips for operating, it would be to be as extensive as you need to be, 
because ultimately not dividing enough is not going to help the patient. Have your first take back early and continue going back on a regular basis until you don't need to divide any additional devitalized tissue. Ultimately, the sooner you get the patient to the operating room, the better their outcome will be. All right. Well, thank you both so much for those great cases. I really learned a lot. I guess we should wrap things up with uh, with a game as we usually do. So for those keeping track at home, I believe it was Dr. Jordan Nada who took home the inaugural uh, Coley No Coley. And then Dr. Ashley Nadler won the very first game of uh, Resect, Divert, Stent, Bypass or Nothing. Last time, unfortunately, we had a tie because... Both of our experts' uh, answers were the same. So hopefully today we can get some answers that uh, diverge a little bit. Um, Today's game is called Investigate or Operate. So um, I've got some challenging cases that um, are a little bit equivocal for what to do with respect to an NSTI, and I'm interested to see what you guys are going to pick. But the twist with this one is that uh, I think it'd be better for everybody if you had the opportunity to provide some rationale. So you don't just have, you have to commit to investigating the patient or operating, but, uh, but you're able to provide some rationale. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. Okay. Sounds great. So the first patient is a 26 year old female. They're an injection drug user and they have new pain and erythema at an injection site. Unfortunately, they're unable to provide you too much of a history. The white count is 15. The sodium is 134. Creatinine is 107. And you got a CRP and it's 170. So Dr. Nadler, what do you think? This is concerning, but I actually want to rule out thrombophobitis. So I would actually do imaging before I'd operate. Okay, Dr. Nadler, what do you think? I agree. I would do imaging. And, and the addition of IV drug use in the setting of sepsis, of course, adds a very broad differential, including things like endocarditis in addition to the local infection. So I would do some more investigation. Sure. All right. Shockingly, they agreed on the first case. So second case, 42-year-old female. She's got refractory perianal Crohn's disease. And 10 days ago, she underwent diverting lupiliostomy. Now she's got worsening peristomal pain and there's some erythema. Her sodium's 128 and she's febrile at 38.5. Dr. Nadler, what do you want to do? Again, very concerning, and I have seen neck fash from an ischemic stoma, um, but it's very low on your list of differential at this point. So um, unless the clinical exam suggested something strongly of that nature, I would do a CT abdo given their post-op course. Yeah, I certainly agree in this case. And even findings like crepitus after bowel surgery become a little bit harder to interpret because sometimes, say, you have a perforation in the stoma or in the uh, um, stoma direct adjacent to the skin it may cause air to track up the skin there. So I, you know, if the patient was unstable, I'd certainly bring him to the OR, but I think with the described case, I'd have a pretty low threshold for investigating further with a CT in this instance. Okay, perfect. Case three, and we'll start with Dr. Nada this time, a 78 year old male, they've got chronic kidney disease and COPD, and they present with unilateral lower extremity cellulitis. They're very tender on palpation. They're edematous and erythematous. Now their white blood cell count is 26 and their sodium is 130. What do you want to do? Yeah, I was hoping that you'd ask Dr. Nadler this one first, because this is a, this is a particularly tough case in my mind. The, the differential is quite broad. And when you have a patient who is quite comorbid and 
and probably has chronic lower extremity swelling. Even the cut down, which is my usual go-to, may cause a chronic wound difficulty for this patient. Uh, so as long as they're stable, which it sounds like they are, I think I would proceed with further investigation first. And in this case, I think probably a CT scan would be useful. Okay, what do you think, Dr. Nather? Yeah, I agree. This is tough. I would consider potentially doing like an aspirate and sending for a gram stain because you're going to minimize the incision and the downstream effects for somebody that does have potentially uh, cellulitis or lower leg um, edema. But again, like I want to get information that's going to help me make the diagnosis as quickly as possible in case I do need to get to the OR. Okay. Case four is a 56-year-old female. They are receiving immunotherapy, which they inject into the left lower quadrant of their abdomen. And now they present with multiple bullae in the area. They're tender, uh, it's erythematous. They're tachycardic to the 120s. Their blood pressure is 95 on 68, and their white blood cell count is 0.1. So uh, let's start with you again, Dr. Nada. What do you think we should do? Yeah, I mean, you have a here who's quite immunosuppressed and they have some very concerning clinical findings. I think in this case, although I never, um, I never take it lightly to bring a patient like this to the operating room, I would operate. Okay. Do you agree, Dr. Nather? Yeah, the immunotherapy throws me off a bit. You can definitely get uh, Stephen Johnson syndrome or 10 related to that, like a medication injection. So I would probably do a cut down or a biopsy of the area. Okay, great. Okay, case five, and uh, Dr. Nadler, we'll start with you for this one. So 82-year-old male, they've had a prolonged admission with a sacral ulcer that's now weeping some fluid. It looks seropurulent. They are afebrile. They are a bit hyponatremic at 129, but their sodium's been in that range throughout their whole admission. They complain of back pain, but mostly they localize it to the paraspinal muscles when you examine them. So do you want to investigate this patient more or take them to the operating room? I'm concerned about the fluid coming from the sacral ulcer. Uh, this may represent a subacute case uh, or more chronic case of NSTI. So I actually would take them for debridement. Okay. What do you think, Dr. Nada? Yeah, tough one as well. Um, you know, but given that it sounds like, I, I agree, this sounds like it's likely subacute in nature, but I think because you have a stable patient with a subacute presentation, we have time to investigate a little bit further. So I would be comfortable getting a CT scan before going in to see the extent of the disease, of course, still wanting to do that in a very timely fashion. Well, it took five questions, but we were able to get different answers. So this is great. Last case. 42-year-old male, they are uh, incarcerated at one of the local institutions. Their medical history is notable for type 2 diabetes, but they're otherwise well. And they come in with new scrotal swelling and pain. There's no history of trauma to the area. When you go and examine the scrotum and the perineum, it's edematous, it's erythematous, and the patient's agitated and tachycardic. What do you think, Dr. Nada? So you have a patient here who certainly has some risk factors. Um, the diabetes is one. Then, of course, you know, incarcerated patients have a higher rate of bloodborne diseases, some of which, of course, can be immunosuppressive, such as HIV. So I'm, I'm, I have an increased um, degree of suspicion for this patient. Um, I would, I would investigate to the extent that I think this patient needs a little bit more of a physical exam first. I need to know whether or not this pain is truly out of proportion. I need to know whether or not there's any crepitus there, or if I'm able to perform a DRE, whether there's signs of any infection in this area. 
Um, I don't think I necessarily need to send this patient for a CT scan though, or anything like that before I bring them to the operating room. Okay. What about you, Dr. Nadler? What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I would just complete my clinical assessment with a more thorough exam. Make sure they don't have an incarcerated hernia, hydrocele, a uh, testicular torsion, but really based on my clinical exam, I would operate. Okay. Well, I've got one more case. It's kind of a bonus case because in, in this particular one, I think we would all um, do some sort of a procedure, but it's one that I've seen before and I, I'm hoping you can help me out with. So um, the vignette is this, it's a 58-year-old male, they're obese, they have type 2 diabetes, and on CT scan, they have a two centimeter perianal uh, abscess. But also on the scan, you see two tiny locules of air that are external to the abscess. They're tachycardic with a heart rate of 120, although their blood pressure is reasonable at 120 over 80. There's extensive erythema when you examine them, but there's no obvious focus of tenderness or fluctuance. So what do you think about this patient, Dr. Nadler? I think the main thing with this patient is, are you going to do an IND at the bedside or are you going to take them to the operating room? We do a lot of drainage of abscess in the emergency department, but this is not a patient that I would want to do that in. So I would actually take them to the OR, drain the abscess, and then inspect the tissue itself because there's a high risk that there's actually necrotic tissue in addition to the abscess. Yeah, so I would completely agree. Um, and the, the other couple of things that I would mention is, you know, you can certainly have some gas forming bacteria with a couple of locular air and a perianal abscess. But the fact that this patient is clinically unwell and tachycardic, I mean, that's more than I would expect for a standard perianal abscess, especially one that's relatively small. So it makes me have an even higher suspicion for a necrotizing infection. Um, I have a very low threshold personally for bringing patients uh, to the operating room to do their INDs of their perianal disease. Um, and the beauty of it is that once you're there and doing your cut down, you're going to have your definitive answer, and then that's going to be able to tell you exactly how extensive you're going to have to be with debridement. Great. Well, thank you guys both so much. Those answers are really thoughtful. I, I really learned a lot. Um, I, I suppose this brings me to the most important part of my job, and that's declaring a winner. It's always a challenge, but I think this week it's pretty obvious. The winner and the person who can say dominate the day is Dr. Stephanie Mason. So Dr. Stephanie Mason, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on and uh, you're up. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.